Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, let's pray together. Then we'll dive in, and we'll actually, we'll actually tonight feel like we're making progress, I think, because it's been, uh, this is week five, and we've been through one book. That's, that's too slow. 26 more to go. Let's knock out three of them tonight if we can. I'm going to try. Let's pray. Father, thank you very much for our opportunity that we have to gather together to study your word, to think about the gospels, to think through these records that were God-breathed that are your self-disclosure revelation of what you wanted us and need us to know. And uh, God, we're so grateful to be on this side of the New Testament and its codification. We're grateful for the chance that we have in a literate society with all these tools and software and computers and pen and ink and all the things that we have to be able to encode this information as best we can into our minds and our memories and more than that into our lives and how we think. So God, give us insight into this book that we're resting our entire lives upon, the record of what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, to live in our place, to provide us with all righteousness and to die in our place so that we might be clean and have our sins removed from us. And God, we pray as we study tonight, you would encourage us, enlighten our minds, give us uh, insight, and uh, may it be a memorable night for us as we gather for this fifth session of New Testament survey. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, some good stuff here. We're going to start with the Gospel of Mark. We have started with Matthew, and I'll follow the same format here with a little bit of review because we've touched just briefly on the distinction between them. And though I don't think I put it in these terms, certainly Mark we know is the shortest gospel. There's debate as to whether or not it's the first gospel or not. That certainly is conventional wisdom among New Testament students today and scholars and teachers and professors. But if you look at the narrative of this book, you'll see a lot of narration about what Jesus did, the things he accomplished, the people that he healed, but not as much in his teaching, not like at all, like we would find in Matthew or John in particular, a lot of discourse in John, but a lot of deeds. It's rapid fire. It's quick paced. If you ever do read in a New Testament survey book, they're surely going to talk about the Greek of this book that has, I guess if you were a teacher, you might say, hey, Mark, settle down on your use of conjunctions. You're saying and, 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 and. Everything's running together. 1,300 times he connects things together and starts a sentence with and. And I remember being busted for that in junior high. But he is connecting things, moving quickly. He uses the word immediately 36 times and a couple synonyms, a handful more times. So over 40 times he's saying, and this happened immediately, immediately. Something in terms of the kind of the, the way he narrates in the historic present, we call it. And we do that sometimes. I sometimes do that in writing, shift into the historic present in terms of uh, Jesus says this, not Jesus said. Jesus sees the man instead of, you know, he saw the man. Now, that kind of historic present keeps the narration moving quickly, and, and it's all about a fast-paced one scene to the next. And that's really what it is, scene after scene after scene in the gospel of Mark. Suffering servant, that's the phrase I gave you as we started to make the distinction. And while I think these distinctions are perhaps subtle on the surface, you certainly see that sense of Mark 
giving us the picture of Christ and that phrase that I think you might be able to put as the banner or a central feature of the book that Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, That's the whole point of this. Christ has come as the servant, that Isaiah 53 suffering servant, to deal with our sin. And we'll see this as we look a little more closely at the book. It's Christ. And I think this has been overstated in some books, but Christ presented to the Romans, to the Latins, to the West. There's a lot of clarification for those in the West. And certainly, and I think it's been overanalyzed, but people talking about how this would appeal to the Western mindset of the first century and how the Western Latin thinkers, the Romans, certainly love the way that Christ was presented in this book. I'm not sure that's the purpose specifically to appeal just to the appetites of the audience. And yet it is certainly clearing the way in terms of the the Jewish barriers to get Christ presented clearly to the audience, which as we'll see is Rome. Now, this is the most interesting thing I think about the book is understanding a little bit more about the author. Uh, it is clear, early, strong, consistent, almost unanimous that all the early early patristic writers or uh, church fathers as we call them patristic means fathers the ch- early church writers early church pastors early church leaders accredit and ascribe this book to mark there's very little debate about that and you should know that as we get into the epistles they start with the tr- traditional salutation and Paul, for instance, will say, you know, uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus or an apostle of Christ, grace and peace to you. And he identifies himself up front, but not in the gospels. That's not what we have. And they're not biographies per se. Obviously, as we've talked about, they're, they're making a point, but it's not a letter in the traditional sense or an epistle in a traditional sense. So they're not identified. None of the gospels clearly identify. There are plenty of hints, but the people that passed them around and copied them, certainly knew early on without much dispute who they were. Matter of fact, it takes a lot of years before we start getting people definitively and dogmatically saying, no, Mark didn't write it, or Luke didn't write it, or John didn't write it, or Matthew didn't write it. The John we're talking about is John Mark. Now, you should recognize that combination of words. By the way, you should know that John is the Jewish name, and Mark is the Latin name, the Roman name, Marcus, John Mark. And, and he has two names in scriptures. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. You might remember things, for instance, where you have it clearly described and clarified that in this case, speaking of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, that's his Latin name, where many were gathered together in the house praying. So three times he's called John Mark. Acts 12, twice. Acts 15, Two times in Acts, he's just called John, but the context makes it clear we're talking about John Mark, we sometimes call him, the quick hyphenated word. And then five times, that's the reason we call him Mark outside of the writings of Luke, because that's normally how he's designated, Mark, just Mark. Acts 15, Colossians 4, Philemon 24, 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, that same character, Mark, whose Hebrew name was John, but he spends all this time in Rome, as we'll see, and he's known as Mark. That's his Latin Western name. He lived in Jerusalem, and we learn, as in just even in the passage I was quoting there, that he's the son of a, of a widow. His mom had a large house uh, where she hosted uh, the church. Interesting, the ties and the networks, just like you'd find in our church. You come in here, you think, well, these are all people from the community and, and, and all the rest. But you look at any church, and you find the networks of relationships. Well, you find those with John Mark as well. He's the nephew of Barnabas, we learn in Colossians chapter 4. And he is actually, because of that connection, assisting Paul and Barnabas on his first missionary journey. Now, this is where it gets interesting. I don't know how you envision the Apostle Paul. The more you study the Apostle Paul, I think you get the sense that he's a, he's a serious, zealous 
black and white, no-nonsense kind of, of leader. And the thing that you might remember about Mark is that he fell out of good graces with the Apostle Paul. We have a lot to learn here on both sides of this debate. But Acts chapter 15, it's worth having the extended passage up here and just to remember what went on. Acts chapter 15 verse 36 begins this way, and after some days Paul said to Barnabas, they had already gone back from their first missionary journey, and uh, they were going to go on their next missionary journey. He said, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas, remember what was his nickname? Son of encouragement. Kind of get a sense of who he is. He's one of the first to put his arm around the Apostle Paul when everyone else thought maybe he was, uh, it was a ploy and he was going after Christians pretending to be one because everyone knew he was notorious for persecuting Christians. But Barnabas said, listen, we took John before. Let's take him again. John, who's called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them at Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So we have no explanation and no commentary as to what happened other than it made Paul mad. I guess mad. I don't want to speak to his disposition, but clearly one who thought he should not be on our missionary team. He shouldn't be in the inner circle. I'm not going to hire him. He's not going to be part of our ministry team because he withdrew. Why did he withdraw? Whatever it was, it didn't make Paul happy. And he thought, no. Well, Paul was the leader of the two of these guys, Paul and Barnabas. And so they had, it says here in the middle of the passage, a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Now that's a big disagreement when you're a ministry partner and you're splitting ways. And Barnabas is so hooked on the fact that he's got to take John Mark with him that he takes Mark and he sails away to Cyprus and he starts to go about the ministry. But Paul chose Silas and that's where he comes into a prominent scene in his writings and through what we read in his letters. He departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. May the Lord favor you. May God be with you. We trust that God will give you fruit in all of this. And they split ways. Now that's an interesting thing that we have here about Mark, is that Mark was uh, disappointing in some way to the Apostle Paul. A lot of people talk about this passage and they debate this passage and Paul in sin, was he not? There's no reference in this text or clues that would lead me to believe that either Barnabas or Paul were in any kind of sin certainly a disagreement about personnel, and that was what was going on in this passage. It multiplied ministry in the end. God was playing chess with his servants, uh, but it was interesting that they split over John Mark. So 11 years later, think about this now in the timeline. I did the work here for you in terms of laying out at least a decade later. When Paul writes from, he writes the prison epistle, he's got a couple of letters he's sending out, but he writes Philemon about the runaway slave He now speaks of John Mark as his fellow worker. And in Colossians, the other letter he writes in conjunction with Philemon, he writes that Mark, John Mark, greets you. That's interesting. So we know in that span of a decade, they're back together now doing ministry again. Uh, Paul is released. You might remember from his imprisonment, he has two imprisonments, and one ends up at the end of 2 Timothy, we learn, and we will learn. He ends up, that was the last imprisonment that we know of, but Mark stays in Rome with Peter. So John Mark ends up going back with Paul. Paul is a part of this uh, letter writing campaign that now he shows that Mark is with him as a uh, young, younger assistant in his work. And when he's released and he leaves Rome, John Mark stays in Rome and Peter is in Rome at that point. It's First Peter 5, 13 says, it's kind of like you see the handoff here of young John Mark. It says, someone sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So now we've got Peter taking Mark under his wing. So we've had Paul, 
then he, I hate to use the word defect, but for some reason he withdraws at Pamphylia, and then Barnabas takes him under his wing, and then Paul picks him back up as a ministry partner in Rome, and now Peter has him under his leadership. So, at the end of it all, by the time he writes the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul, and this is the passage where he's talking about being poured out as a drink offering, he knows he's at the end of his life in terms of this last persecution in the Roman officials and how he's going to lose his life, Mark is fully restored in Paul's mind. And We've seen that he's already partnered with him, but he says now as he's in prison the second time, get Mark and bring him. He's writing, Paul's writing Timothy, of course, who's a young pastor. He says, for he is very useful to me for ministry. It's just a complete turnaround. And it's interesting to watch how Mark, John Mark ends up being in so many different situations. But it's a great story, is it not, of seeing someone who stumbles, at least in the eyes of the Apostle Paul, and I would tend to think his reason, discernment is good. His decision-making evaluations of John is good, John Mark. And through a process of going back into the game, getting back in ministry, proving himself faithful, by the time the senior apostle to the Gentiles is being done with his work, he goes, that guy, I want that guy on my team, I need him here, and he names him near the top of his list of people that he needs with him, and he even describes that he's not just useful, he's very useful to me in the ministry that he was doing. That was a quite a reference from the Apostle Paul. It'd be great to have the Apostle Paul say, you're very useful to me, and it would feel even better, would it not, after he said, I don't even want to take you on the next missionary journey. So if you failed in some way, or you feel like you've fallen on your face in ministry or some endeavor, whatever, maybe you've even let down human leaders, and that's uh, appropriate. It happens, and there may be decisions you've been passed over for things, if not here, somewhere else. Just know there's a great story and perhaps some identification you have with John Mark who uh, finds himself back not only in good graces with the leaders, but at the top of their list. Great story, I think. Anyway, and then he ends up writing (laughs) the Gospel of Mark. Now, we'll connect a few things here in a minute, but let's talk about the date, which I've already told you is very hard. When we looked at Matthew, I've said, if we're trying to figure out if there's Mark in priority, if there is Mark in priority, as most people would say, then you've got to have this before Matthew and Luke, and clearly no one's debating it comes before John, but there is obviously debate about this. And part of the debate is not helped by the earliest references in church history to the gospel of Mark. There are conflicting statements, and there are two early church leaders, Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius. Clement is in about 200 A.D., and Eusebius A.D. 300. He says that Peter was still alive when Mark penned the words of the gospel. So we'll get to the time markers in a minute, but that's the first reference, is that he is there as Peter's amanuensis, if you will, his secretary, not just his secretary. Now, he's not dictating to to Mark, but John Mark is working under Peter, probably from Rome, as, as he is trying to get the, the message of Christ out to, to more and more people. And even, you remember that when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says things, for instance, like uh, about the Lord's Supper. The night he was betrayed, he took bread. Remember all that? Well, that, that precedes the Gospels, uh, we, we're assuming. It's one of the earliest references, an early book. And that's the kind of thing that Paul had seen and Peter had obviously witnessed and was there. All of that needed to be codified. There's a conflict, though. About 20 years before Clement, at least 20 years, Arrhenius had written that Peter had died. 
Matter of fact, the way he states it is that John Mark put down into writing the things that he had remembered and memorized from what Peter had said regarding the life of Christ. So you have this conflict. Now, if you want a time marker, you got to figure out, well, when did Peter die? Peter died, and there's, you know, we could go into all the ins and outs of this, but it seems most likely and almost certain that he died during Nero's persecutions. His persecutions ramped up in 63, AD 63 and 64. It had hit its height. We've talked about that date before with the emperor, the Roman emperor Nero. So if he dies before that, there are some scholars that like to piece together the clues, and there's not many, and they're not firm, but the statements of church fathers and looking at the timeline in the book of Acts, they say it could be as early as 45, certainly folks that want Mark in priority because that makes the most sense to them. We just, it should be earlier. And of course, they're not going to do it for the sake of their theory. You'd like to think they're not, but they're pushing it toward 45 or 50 years after year of our Lord, not after Christ's birth, obviously, plus four or five. If he writes in Rome while he's with Peter, in those peri- that period of time when he's with Peter after Paul goes, that's a period of about 62, 63 AD. And if it's after Peter's death, then it's got to be after the Roman persecution. We think he died in 64. So that's 64. And most scholars will say between 64 and 68 AD. So AD 45 would be the earliest that anyone would try to make a case for, and it's quite complicated and involved, but that's what the earliest time is. The time, if he's writing with Peter and collaborating with him on this in in human terms, then it's around 62 or 63. If it's after Peter's death, as Irenaeus suggests, then it's 64 to 68. But that gives you a pretty good ballpark. Now, if you go to some liberal school, and, and they are talking about dates, and there's no telling when they'll say Mark was written. Matter of fact, you can go to a lot of community colleges, and because they're reading Dan Brown's fiction and not history, they might say it's from the third, fourth century, which is absurd. And no one in their right mind believes that, because almost every word of Mark was quoted by the early church fathers in their preaching by the end of the second century, beginning of the third century. And that's with extant homilies and, and sermons that we have. Nevertheless, you're going to hear other things, but I'm telling you, it's absurd. That's the strongest word I have for you on that. Distinct content. Now we've told you this. One of the reasons that everyone wants to think that Mark came first, well, at least one of the reasons, at least part of the rationale is because the material in Matthew and Luke are all, there's hardly any unique material. And and remember the chart that we had, we've got 3% unique material in Mark. Most of it is shared either by Luke or by Matthew or Luke and Matthew. So it has the least amount of material. It's the shortest, obviously, but there is some unique material. And because it's such a small amount, I've given you almost all of it here. But for the sake of kind of running through some things you won't find in Matthew, Luke, or John, parable of the seed growing and sprouting secretly. No one knows how earth produces its fruit. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. All of that is unique to Mark. The healing of the deaf mute. What's interesting about this in theories, and I've heard guys lecture on this as to why this was left out of Matthew and Luke, but it's the interesting story where Jesus puts spit, remember, on his finger and puts it in the ear of the deaf man. That particular detail of the healing of the deaf mute and how it's done is unique to Mark. He also quotes the Aramaic word, Ephrathah. Remember, he says, be opened when he touches his ear and then he can hear. 
Uh, the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. That's in Mark chapter 8. Uh, the other thing, too, I have heard lectures on this as to why people think that this wasn't in Matthew or Luke because, and for different reasons, because whatever, I won't get into that. It's the story of the blind man at Bethsaida that is healed, and when he sees for the first time, he, he says, I see people walking around like trees. Remember that line? It's like, I see people walking around like trees. Which I guess, I don't know, my imagination from the time I was a kid, and I did hear a, a professor just recently give this explanation, which I thought, that's what I've, that's always, I, I've always imagined. I've thought, if you've never ever seen, this guy's blind from birth. All you can do, I suppose, is hug a person, touch a person. How weird would it be to see people walking through the marketplace and you've never seen people walking around before? I don't know. It made sense to me that he would make that statement. But anyway, part of the theory is it's not in there because it seems like he's not really seeing clearly and it seems like it's it's not a complete healing at first and he's kind of warming up into this sight thing, which I don't think at all is what's going on here. Nevertheless, that is a unique story to Mark. Weird statement about the, I call it the praise of salt. It's the passage in Mark 9 where he says, salt is good. Now the commonality to the Sermon on the Mount is when salt loses its saltiness, how is it going to be made salty again? But then he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he also says in that same passage, he says everything will be, will be salted with fire. All that discussion about salt in that one little paragraph is from Mark 9. I had a question about that on the radio this week on my, uh, my time on answering Bible questions. I won't get into that. Then the most interesting thing, I suppose, because the theories are that this is in fact Mark, because in one scene you wouldn't expect in every, for whatever your theory is about what came first in terms of Mark and priority, it doesn't make sense that this little detail is in there unless, at least this is the theory, that it's Mark. Remember the scene when it speaks of the guy in the Garden of Gethsemane that's only in the linen covering? And when the whole scene comes down and the chaos and they show up at the clubs, they grab him. But when they grab him, he pulls away and it rips his, his clothes off. And it says he runs away naked and he calls him the young man. The theory is that that is actually Mark in, in that scene. At least that's how people theorize about this. Mark was part of that, that band. All right, distinct content, more. Really small details, which I don't know, since I have space here, because there's not a lot of unique information, I thought I would give you some small details. It's the only gospel that opens up by kind of naming itself a gospel. Now, the word gospel is used in Matthew, may even be used in John. I think it's used in Mark or Luke now that I think about it. But to start it in verse 1, that phrase about the gospel, this is the beginning of the gospel, that's verse 1-1. It's the only time that, it's the only of the four that do that. Interesting little tiny thing, which is whatever, make what you will of it. When it speaks of Christ being tempted in the desert, it speaks of the wild animals. He was out there in the desert, right? He'd been fasting with the wild animals. I just thought it was an interesting statement. Now, every gospel deals with the conflict over the Sabbath, but it's the only gospel where Jesus is recorded as saying, the Sabbath was made for man, man was not made for the Sabbath, which is an interesting way to describe that in indicting the Pharisees because you've made something ridiculous out of the Sabbath. The Sabbath certainly had a function. It was a sign of the covenant between Israel and their maker. It had a religious and ceremonial component, but it also had a component of resting, even down to your animals resting, and they're not worshiping, they're just resting, but they, they made this a crazy um, human tradition. When I was preaching through the, remember the Jericho healing blind man Bartimaeus, and I used his name Bartimaeus? Well, we only get his name Bartimaeus. That was just before he comes into the triumphal entry, coming from Jericho up to Bethany into Jerusalem. It's the only gospel that names him by name. 
And there's theories about that. I won't get into that, but how he might have known that. And I love this too, because whenever I preach on that passage about his family coming to get him when he's teaching, it's the only gospel that makes it very clear that his family thought he was out of his mind. I think I made a reference, was it last week or in the weekend? I don't remember which, about Jude being the brother of Christ. And I said he wasn't believing. Remember that? Well, this is one of the passages we hang our hat on that his family didn't believe and they thought he was crazy, right? He wasn't, he wasn't acting rationally. He needed to chill out and relax and rest. And everyone wanted to see him and teach him. He get his teaching rather. I don't even know if I want to open this can of worms, but I thought it's one of the examples of how to solve some of these harmonization problems. And it's probably one of the most dramatic, clear conflicts. And you can't solve it just by reading the passage. But I've, I've mentioned it when I dealt with the text in Luke. Luke and Matthew, when they tell the disciples to go out without food, without a money bag, remember all that? And in Mark, it says you can, you can take a staff. Don't take anything except a staff, rabdos in Greek, a staff. The other ones explicitly say, don't take a staff. And on the missionary journey, and then later he reverses all that, as we just learned in Luke 22, as we saw it reversed, where he says, okay, you didn't take a knapsack, didn't take a money bag, you didn't take any of that stuff. How did you do? We did fine. Okay, now go back to taking all that. If you don't have a cloak, sell your cloak, buy a sword, that whole thing. Well, were they allowed to take a staff or were they not allowed to take a staff? And this is one that's only linguistically solved. And it's only saw, it's the one that says, except a staff. This is the one passage. And people will say, oh, right there, there's a major conflict. Well, there is a linguistic conflict, a logical conflict, because the word is used. The problem is the word, just like a lot of our English words, is used in, in multiple ways. The Old Testament in Hebrew, two clear, distinct words for rod and staff. It was the two weapons, or I should say the two utensils of the shepherd. Uh, his rod and his staff, they comfort me, Psalm 23. And I've told you many times before from the platform that the, we had the staff, which was the big stick, and we had the rod, which was the short stick. Well, they were both sticks, and they were both carried by the shepherd. One was for walking and getting a, you know, a, a wayward sheep out of a ditch or whatever you might use it for in that regard with the crook on the end is how we envision it. And then one was used in your belt as a weapon. It was also used for wrapping the, the lamb on the nose and that kind of thing, but it was used primarily as a weapon. Well, when you're translating the Old Testament Hebrew into, into Greek, which they did in the third century BC in what we call the Septuagint, we had to get the Old Testament from Hebrew into the library of Alexandria, and Alexander the Great started this great library, commissioned all the great books of the world to be translated, so the Bible was going to be translated by these 70 scholars into Greek. Well, when they did that, they get to that passage. And they had to use two separate words for rod and staff. And so in the Septuagint, they have a word. It's just a, a rare word. In this couple hundred years, at least 250 years, 300 years before the New Testament was written. Well, by the time of the New Testament, we don't have the other word that is used. Bacteria, like bacteria. Bacteria is the, the word for rod. So the word rabdos was used both for the rod and the staff. Just like we use words that overlap. Plenty of words. And I didn't think of love, for instance. I use that one all the time. Or I love cheese. It's love my wife, love my job, those kinds of things. We, we use it for a wide variety of things. We don't mean the same thing by it. Nevertheless, in this passage, I think you can clearly make the contextual conclusion that whatever was used, because in the passage, he says, you can take sandals, but you and you can take a cloak, but you can't take an extra cloak and you can't take your money bag and you can't take a weapon. 
Because then he reverses it and says you can take a weapon. You can take swords even at the end. So we know rabdos, if we're talking about something you can take, because it's in the same sentence in Mark about taking sandals, you got to wear sandals. That connection is one of, I think, clearly a walking stick in Mark. And then when it's expressly prohibited in terms of the kinds of provisions you'd take if you were in trouble, if you were stuck and you needed a place to lodge and all that, your money bag and your extra tunic and your, your knapsack and your weapon. Well, the word rabdos is used in Matthew and Luke to prohibit that. Anyway, whatever. I probably shouldn't have brought that up. But it was the, it's the one gospel that says, it, you know, you can don't take these things except your sandal and your your sandals and your staff. All right. I just think that's a limitation of the language and the context helps us solve the problem. Mark writing primarily to the Romans from Rome about the issues of dietary restrictions. He explains a lot of customs. He explains a lot of Aramaic terms. He explains things that are going on in Judaism. Well, one thing he's trying to explain in the statement about what goes into your stomach doesn't defile you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Uh, he makes a statement that, about what Jesus says, a, a God-breathed, inspired commentary about Christ in that context. And he says, thus he, Christ, declared all foods clean. Just interesting in that context, as he says to the Romans, we assume, to clarify kind of why all these dietary restrictions changed for the Jewish people. Also, again, if you think about the Roman mindset of of Mark, John Mark, writing to the Romans, there's an interest he takes in the centurions, and there's that one unique statement that none of the other gospels have about the centurion, the leader of the hundred Roman soldiers, responding to Christ on the cross when he sees him die, when he sees the manner he died, he said, surely this was the son of God. Remember that phrase? That was only found in Mark. And this is a super small thing, but when when the ladies come up to put the spices on the body of Christ after the Sabbath was over on Sunday morning, who's going to roll away the stone? Because he doesn't, I think, want to get into some details that would be pertinent to the Jewish people, but probably not of interest in even needing to add to the story to the Romans, he doesn't even bring up Samaritans and the distinctions, and the other gospels are all going to deal with that. He explains, as I've already said, Jewish customs where other gospel writers will just assume you know these customs. And he'll explain what they mean. He'll tell you why they do this. Like the washing of hands. And I, I think I wrote one of those down. Yeah, Mark 7, 3. For the Pharisees and all Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding the tradition of the elders. And that's the kind of explanation Matthew would never need. He would never think to use that. And even uh, John, you'd think context. There's a, such a rich clarity about Jewish culture and context, but Mark explains those things as he writes to the Romans. Simple outline, again, super, super simple. It's almost not even worth having up, but chapter one, presentation of Christ, chapters two through 10, the deeds of Christ, and that's a hard turn. Once you get to chapter 10, you're kind of done with all the the narrative after narrative in terms of what Jesus is presenting, and then it comes to the suffering of Christ. You can split the book right there after chapter 10, and then we have the crucifixion, the rejection, the crucifixion, and then, of course, chapter 16 is the resurrection. Presentation, deeds, suffering, resurrection. That's a simple, simple, super-duper simple, more simple than is almost useful outline of the book. We'll get into the smaller books. I think our outlines will become more important and helpful, but the Gospels are difficult, as you know and can imagine. One more thing we should deal with, letter F, is the longer ending of Mark. Just deal with that real quick, because whenever you're in your Bible and you're getting to this section, you, you will read this right here, will you not? You'll see something in brackets that say some earliest manuscripts do not include. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. These verses, what is that, 12 verses, you're like, what's with that? 
why is, why is that? What's going on with that? If they're not supposed to be there, why are they in my Bible? So that, that is, is a question people will have. So let's deal with that just quickly. If you look at verse 8 of Matthew 16, which is up on the screen, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Well, wait a minute. The women are supposed to go tell the apostles. We're supposed to see all this stuff happen in terms of Christ being raised, and they're going to rejoice. Well, we're at the scared moment in this book, and then we're done. It's an abrupt ending in in verse 8. Well, that's what we've got, I say, in the best manuscripts, and we can debate that, and I've taught for several weeks, 13 weeks on, on that and how we figure all that out. But the oldest, seemingly most reliable manuscripts, and we'll try and make a case even in this passage real quickly, proves why we have these editions. There's four editions. There's four things that come beyond verse 8 that grew up within the first seven centuries after the New Testament was written. Now, in the margin, you'll see this one in the margin of your Bible, uh, if you have an ESV. It'll, it's called the shorter ending of Mark. The short ending of Mark in, in the ESV will read something like this. And all, I think I'm reading from the ESV translation, almost every translation will have something in the margin for the shorter ending. It usually doesn't end up in the text. And all that had been commanded them, right, these gals, they told briefly to those with Peter. And afterward, Jesus himself sent out through them from the east and as far as the west, the holy imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And then a lot of the manuscripts that have this say amen at the end. So they kind of tack on a verse number nine, and it's a single verse, and that's the shorter ending of Mark, it's called. You got the abrupt ending before the bracket, then you got the short ending. Then you got the long ending, and that's probably what's in your Bibles under that bracketed heading that says some manuscripts don't have this, or the best manuscripts don't have this, or the earliest manuscripts don't have this. That you can read on your own, and you see there, and it goes on for 12 verses. Then there's another option. There's the long ending, plus one verse. I wasn't going to have this, but then I looked at the ESV and I realized it has it in the margin, or at least it's alluded to in the margin, so I'll let you know what it is. And that is the longer ending with those 12 verses really ends up being 13 verses because there's another verse included in it after verse 14. And it's alluded to in your margin, and I forget what it says, but there's only one manuscript. It's an important manuscript. It's a 5th century manuscript, but here it is, and rarely... We take interest in a manuscript that just has one that one manuscript has, but here it is. And they excuse themselves. This is after verse fourteen. And they excuse themselves, saying, "This age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan, who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail over unclean things of the spirit. Therefore, reveal your righteousness now." Thus they spoke to Christ, and Christ replied to them, "The term of years of Satan's power has been fulfilled." but other terrible things draw near. This is a long verse. And for those who have sinned, I have handed over to death and that they may return to the truth and sin no more, that they may inherit the spiritual and imperishable glory of righteousness that is in heaven. Doesn't even sound like anything we've read in Mark, but anyway, there it is. And it's the third edition, which is all all 12 verses, but after verse 14, there is that extra verse, which is more like a paragraph. But since it's only that one manuscript, it's usually just given one verse. And I don't even think that's in your Bible, maybe in your footnotes if you have a reference Bible, but I don't think the ESV translation without footnotes or a study Bible is even going to have that in it. Then there is the short ending, which I read to you, which I do think is in your margin, and the long ending that's actually in your Bible under the bracket. There's your fourth option. You actually have five options if you think about it abruptly ends at verse 8, or you got a short ending, which is verse 9, or you got the long ending, which is what you see in your Bibles under the brackets or in italics, and then you got the long ending plus another verse, a long verse, I just read you in verse 14, or you've got the short and long smashed together. What's going on with that? That's what you're asking, I'm assuming. This is a tough 
This is a tough one. It's one of the few sections of Scripture. You could add this woman caught in adultery in John, which we'll get to, perhaps. These are the two largest sections that are disputed. The reason you even know about them is because in 1611, when the scholars got together, the Hampton Court, to decide to translate the King James Bible, to put a Bible into English that everyone could agree on, as all the disputes about the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible, they were saying, let's get an English Bible. They based it on the work, the 200-year-old work of Erasmus, and Erasmus had done his work at Cambridge and pulled together whatever manuscripts he had available, and it wasn't the best manuscripts even available at the, in the day. Had he had a greater reach, it was the best he could get a hold of. It wasn't certainly the best that they had in the 17th century, and clearly wasn't as good as to what we have, nor as broad as we have had since that time, or clearly nothing compared to what we have today. So based on what he had, he ended up translating, these guys ended up translating the Bible. And one of the things they did is they put in this longer ending of Mark in Mark 16, these 12 verses. Because it got in the King James Bible, which became the dominant Bible in the English-speaking world, that's why your Bible has a hard time swallowing hard and not putting it in there. But it is a clearly a, a late edition. Well, let me make a couple statements about it. Eusebius said in 300, the long ending is lacking in almost all existing copies of the gospel. Jerome said in 400, he was the one who translated everything into Latin, which was the thousand-year Bible of the church. The long ending was found in a few gospels and were missing in almost all Greek copies. So I'm just trying to tell you early, early on, 300s, 400s, and Jerome worked at the end of the 300s and the beginning of the 400s, all of these scholars were like, this is, we have this long ending, but it's not reliable. Not many gospels have it. Very few that that have it. It, it, Because it ended up in Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and because it ended up at Hampton Court with the writing of the King James Version, that's the that's the reason you're exposed to it. Few things about it: the grammar and transitions and tone of the whole thing are just foreign to everything that we've had in Mark up to this point. Even the verse I read to you. I mean, I know it sounds odd because you've never heard it, but if you just were to read that and look at it compared to the rest of the book, you'd say. That does not sound like anything that Mark has recorded up to that point. The vocabulary is different. There are nine unique words in those 12 verses in the longer ending of Mark that you don't find anywhere else in the book, which is a sign that perhaps we're not dealing with Mark's original words. Two very unique phrases unique to the entire rest of the the New Testament, which I guess that's not a huge point, but the way it reads certainly is unique. It's unique, double unique to the style and grammar and tone of Mark but even unique to some of what you would find in the rest of the New Testament. I can give you material on this if you're really going to struggle and not sleep well at night. You can read through this. I'm not sure it's going to help you sleep much better, but it's one of those rare situations where something, we're not taking anything out of the Bible. What we're concerned with is we in the 15th century don't want to put anything into the Bible. So we'd like to have what Mark actually wrote. There are theories. I've read a book on uh, a theory of not only do we all wonder what's going on at the end of Mark, sometimes we're looking at the beginning of Mark saying it sure starts abruptly too. And you know, if you ever have some old comic books or something that the cover gets ripped off of, one of the theories in this book is fairly new is that we lost the beginning and the end of it. It kind of starts abruptly and ends abruptly. And very early on, I mean, maybe back to the beginning of it, the way it was put together as a codice right out of the gate, maybe we've lost the, the beginning and the end. So maybe we've lost the end of it. We don't know. It shouldn't worry you. Why? Because of statements like this, which is absolutely true. No one's trying to pull one over on you. When a comparison to the variant readings of the New Testament, when you got old manuscripts that don't all agree, like Jerome and Eusebius 
testified to, and you compare it to any other book from antiquity, the results are a little short of astounding. Only about one-sixteenth rise above the level of trivial, and the trivial nature is just things that are misspelled words, misspelled proper names, conflict about an order or an inversion of a word. They're so trivial, and there's very few of them that rise to any significance at all. And this just happens to be one of them. It's actually the biggest one in the New Testament. All right. We can talk more about that, but as I see the time flying, we'll move on. Because that's one book, and we've been here a while already. Wow. Luke, well, we can do this one quickly because we know all about the Gospel of Luke. (laughs) What's the focus of this? One great thing about the introduction to Luke is he tells us what he's doing. He's going to compile a narrative. That's what he says. And it's a narrative that he's going to compile not only the life of Christ, but the life of the apostles. So we've got Luke and Acts. He provides, he says in verse 3, an orderly account. I want to put this together. I want to do my research, and I want to provide an orderly account. I gave you this phrase when we talked about the focus in comparison to Mark and Matthew, and that is that he's trying to give us a priestly Savior. He's trying to show us Christ as, a, as dying for us, as a representative of us. One of the reasons I think he loves the double entendre of Son of Man. It's double entendre because he's the Son of Man and that he represents us. He's like us, and yet he's the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I always refer to that passage because Son of Man, as we see it in the Old Testament, there's some figure that comes out of heaven that looks like a human being and God we know doesn't look like a human being because he has no shape, no form, no, no body but here comes someone like a son of man coming out of heaven to receive all dominion and power and authority and everyone should worship him and everything belongs to him and all power and glory and honor and wealth should go to him. This son of man, Luke loves that, that concept. We get a little bit of this and many, many months ago now when I started Luke I tried to tell you that Theophilus both in Luke 1 and Acts 1, is the, is the object of this, the recipient of this letter. But it seems like, clearly, if it is a real person or a patron or someone who's paying for this or underwriting, or if it's just some effort to deliver it to someone important, we don't know who this is. It could even be poetic, which may be, because Luke is ingenious, his rhetoric is amazing, but Theophilus means, Theos, you know, Phileo, you know. Phileo, love, can mean friend as a noun, right, in in reference to a person. Theos, God, it can mean friend of God or loved by God. And and it could be that, hey, here's here's a gospel to the ones that are excellent in my mind, loved by God. The author, consistent and early, almost unanimous. Everyone in the early church, Luke is the author. Again, it's not a, epistle doesn't start with the general description and revelation as to who the author is. Luke, as we know, because of the book of Acts, is a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul. Oftentimes in the book of Acts, you'll see Luke slip into first-person plural pronouns, certainly from this point on in the book, chapter 16 on, after Athens. He sails to Troas. We made a direct voyage, uh, even before Athens, I should say. But a lot of personal pronouns. He's there. He's on the missionary journeys. He's with Paul. He's Paul's assistant. He's Paul's ministry partner. A lot of Paul and Luke throughout the New Testament. If you just do a search in your computer software for Luke or in Paul's writings, you'll see things like this. I quoted the last half of this verse in 2 Timothy 4.11 about John Mark. Bring him with you. He's useful, very useful for me in ministry. Well, that starts with Luke alone is with me. So here's Paul in prison and with him at that point. He wants Mark back, but he's got Luke by his side in that trying time. 
Luke is a physician, it says in Colossians 4.14. He calls him the beloved physician. If you know anything about Paul's life, not only was he beaten up all the time, as he says in First and Second Corinthians, left for dead. Obviously, we see in the book of Acts, cat of nine tails, 39 lashes, but he's got problems. We got the thorn in the flesh, Second Corinthians 12. We read it recently in our daily Bible reading in Galatians. He said, you love me so much, you would have gouged your own eyeballs out and given me what, with what big letters I write in my own hand. He had some kind of eye problem. He had some kind of illness, some kind of sickness, some kind of chronic problems. Good if you're going to have a ministry partner who is also a physician. And while the medicine of the day may not have been what it is today, it's great to have a doctor on your speed dial. And so he did. And if you look through his book, and I've pointed this out a few times in the writings of Luke, his medical interest in Luke, details about the human body you don't find in the other passages, statements about the illnesses these people had before they were healed, for instance. He's from Antioch, which is a super important city in the early church, Antioch in Syria, that is. Some would speculate, and maybe this is too far to stretch our imagination, but the nearest learning center, university to Antioch was uh, Tarsus, and some believe Paul from Tarsus. Perhaps they have uh, cross paths there. I don't know. That has been written about early on. Arrhenius in 185 speaks of Luke as the gospel writer, as the physician, as the resident, or at least finding its origin from Syria and Antioch. Justin Martyr speaks of him in 150. That's a very early reference to Luke's gospel. And I always talk about these early church fathers, and I thought it'd be a good moment to slip in all of this. And that is that there's nine volumes, eight or nine volumes of what we call anti-Nicene fathers. The Nicene, the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, kind of splits up just for the sake of academics and reference, our church, early church writings. So I've got in this set, which is a hundred bucks, I guess, you can probably, you can find it public domain online, but you've got eight big volumes, thousands of pages of writings before the year 325. And this is where we get so much information about the early church, about the writings of who wrote what, the disciples of the disciples, of the disciples of the apostles. But the whole set is 37 volumes. You've got about eight or nine volumes pre-Nicaea. You've got Nicene and what we call post-Nicene fathers. But if you really are interested, you keep hearing these words, Clement of Alexandria, Polycarp, Irenaeus, you can read about them and do a lot of great searches with Logos, cross searches, multiple word searches to kind of find their references to all these things that we talk about. That's on Logos. It's called the early church fathers, sometimes called the patristic fathers or the anti, the anti, anti, not anti, anti. Uh, some are more anti, Nicaea, but those are the heretics. But anyway, author. Timing is right. And again, some people speculate. I don't know how many of your study Bibles might recommend this in 2 Corinthians 8.18, but it says, with him, Titus, we're sending the brother. Remember Paul sending Titus. He says, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Some people think that's Apollos, but the timing is right of, of Luke being with Paul at this time. And some think that's a reference to Luke, which would be a great resume builder, I suppose. Talk about having the favor of someone important, calls him a famous preacher. Luke is with Paul for two years in Caesarea. Luke not only is with Paul through lots of travel and to Rome and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, but if you go to Israel with us, as I know some of you are signed up to go to our next trip, 
Uh, and some of you have been with me, you've been before, but Caesarea, not Caesarea Philippi, but Caesarea Maritime, they call it, which is the Caesarea by the Mediterranean Sea. It's where Paul had had gone and he was taken captive. Uh, they've rebuilt the old amphitheater there. They actually do concerts and stuff there. It's beautiful. They have the breeze coming off the Mediterranean, which helps the sound from the ancient world. And they still use it today for concerts and stuff like that. But that is where Paul defended himself before Festus and Agrippa and Felix, Drusilla. But Paul was there for two years under arrest in that place. And Luke was there with him in that city, which is a beautiful place. If you haven't been there, so the aqueduct comes down to Caesarea that's still standing from biblical times. Anyway, get to Israel if you haven't been. It's a great trip. Colossians chapter 4, verse 11. Jesus, who is called justice, there are only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Why do I say this? Because in the middle of this list, he's listing all these people. And as I already showed you, in verse 14, he's going to talk about Luke. Well, he says the only people in this list that he's talking about here that are of the circumcision. These are the, the Jewish people. The only people he's with, this apostle to the Gentiles, the only guys are Jesus, not the Jesus of Nazareth, but the other Jesus who's called Justice and the other guy, which was earlier in verse 10, I suppose. Those are the only two guys among the circumcision. What does that mean? That means that Luke is not a Jew, which maybe you've never thought of this. There are 66 books of the Bible. Guess what? They're all written by Jews, except for Luke. Luke is our only Gentile author of scripture. Which is an amazing thing when you think about it as a non-Jewish person. Because I've tried to say before, I've said it in different ways, I'll say it this way now. Out of the 138,010 words in the Greek New Testament, Luke is credited with 37,933 of them. That's 27% of the New Testament. That's more than any other author. Paul is credited with 32,400. That's 23%. So Luke wrote most of the New Testament. Talk about the new covenant. Talk about all the nations of the world being blessed. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. You think that the number one in terms of volume writer of the New Testament wasn't even a Jewish person. That's an amazing and wonderful thought for us. Most of us, at least, are Gentiles here, right? That's a good, that's a good thing. When was it written? Well, this is hard to say. Acts ends abruptly. Now, remember, you have to remember that Acts is the second volume of this writing. Acts is part two that he writes to Theophilus. So it ends with Paul under house arrest in Acts 28 at AD 63 or 64. So if you're thinking about the sequence of the writing of these books, we don't know how close they were written, but I'm assuming pretty close to one another. If he's in Caesarea, some would say, oh, well, then he wrote in in 58. Well, he certainly couldn't have written Acts in 58 because Acts hadn't all happened yet in 58. Now he could have written that if he was for two years where you have a lot of time on your hands, where you're sitting in Caesarea Maritime with Paul and perhaps together because Paul the Apostle and Luke, after he's doing all that research, he's got downtime, he's he's got what he needs as a well-educated physician to write this. Maybe he did do that then. Couldn't have written Acts then as we'll see when we study Acts. If he did it while he went to Rome, because of course he follows Paul to Rome, he appeals to Caesar, he goes to Rome, then perhaps he wrote this in 64, AD 64. Most everyone would agree, at least most people reading carefully and thoughtfully and objectively, that this was done all before 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. There's no hints of that in the book. You'd think it would be mentioned, certainly in the statements about the temple being destroyed, not one stone upon the other. All these predictions you would see, there would be a connection, as there often is in Luke's gospel, to now events. So 
It's before 70 AD. We don't know when. Again, depends on what your belief is about literary dependence on the gospel. You might, by your theory, be kind of prejudiced and pushing it one direction or the other. But as we've seen with the gospels, Matthew and Mark, these are hard dates to nail down. We can only piece together some windows of opportunity. Distinct content? Well, we have plenty of it in Luke. I'll just give you a couple highlights. 35% unique material, as I said, when we put the charts together. Well, one of the things, as you know, is the great narrative we get in chapter one of the birth of John the Baptist. We learn about Elizabeth. We learn about her dad who gets struck, can't speak. Zachariah, the priest. Zacharias, the priest. And he is struck, can't speak, until he writes down that his name's going to be John as the angel told him, we get the birth story. Now we have it in Matthew as well, but we get the the section about the angels and the or the uh, yeah the angels and the shepherds in the field and the manger. All that is unique from Luke. We get all that information filled in. We have just a touch of that in Matthew. Presentation in the temple. I've referred to that many times as we preach through Luke. I go back to that scene. I just quoted it again on this weekend's sermon about the Simeon taking up Jesus in his arms. All that scene is all unique to Luke, that eighth day presentation, fulfillment of the Old Testament law, doing exactly what he ought to do, offering the sacrifice for the firstborn son. That 12-year-old scene at the temple when he gets left behind and he says, you should have known I'd be here about my father's business and my father's house. That's the 12-year-old scene. That's unique to Luke. We have a genealogy in Matthew, but we don't have it all the way back to Adam. There is a connection there with at least a set of names and generations that go back to Adam. I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but there are some stories that are very famous and familiar to you, like the 10 lepers, where are the other nine? Only one came back to thank him. That's unique to the gospel of Luke, the 10 lepers. Zacchaeus, a little short tax collector, climbs the tree. That is unique to the gospel. That's about the same time Bartimaeus, which we learn his name from Mark, is healed. That comes in the same time frame, frame as Jesus heading toward Jerusalem for the last time. Are you up with me on all that? Some parables that are unique to the book. The two debtors, certain money lender had two debtors. Remember that one owed 500, one owed 50. Who's going to love them more? He makes that point. That's the two debtors. That one may be small, but this one's big. The good Samaritan beaten up on the road. You know that story. That's unique to Luke. There's two stories of persistent people, a persistent widow, which I guess I could have put back to back. I'm trying to give him an order here, but persistent friend at midnight that won't relent, just like the unrighteous judge. We'll see that in a minute. That's also unique to Luke. The rich fool building the silos, and it's the one place I always smile when I read it when I probably shouldn't. That's perverse, I suppose, but God calls that man a fool. He says, you fool. And that was all predicated on someone trying to split their inheritance. And, you know, he says, even in your life doesn't exist in the abundance of your possessions. But he tells that great parable about that. The very beatings. Remember that parable I taught on that when you saw that someone who knew a lot was more responsible if you've been reading my book on things after 10 mistakes people make about heaven, hell, and the afterlife, I've got a lot that I draw from that parable, of course, because he speaks to the varied punishments. And I go back to the Old Testament to show all sin is not the same. All sin makes us sinners, but not all sin is treated equally. And one of the things in that parable is very clear. It's how much you know, just like in James chapter 4. The unfruitful tree, in that passage where he uh, speaks of that fig tree that has no fruit, We've heard about the lost sheep elsewhere, but we haven't heard about the lost coin and the lost son. Those all come together in Luke 15, sweeping the house for the lost coin. The woman finds it. Joy, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The lost son, often called the prodigal son. Remember that? Of course we do, Pastor Mike. The shrewd steward. Remember he's praised for being shrewd. Goes around saying, mark your bill down. He says the people, this sons of this 
world, this earth, they're more shrewd in relation to their sin as you are, you know, more than you in terms of, of righteous things. Make friends by means of mammon. Rich man and Lazarus, very insightful application to the afterlife we have in that passage about conscious existence, immediately swept into conscious realities, either in suffering or comfort. There's the persistent widow, kept that in order, and the unrighteous judge. One we quote all the time, it's the one reference to the word justification in Luke's gospel and any of the gospels. Of course, we see Paul's connection there. Paul loves that phrase. He writes a book to the Romans that really so much of it is predicated on that word. And here we have him saying that, who went home justified, the one who was beating his breast, not willing to look up to heaven. A couple other scenes that would be worth mentioning, Jesus before Herod, that scene with him before Herod, which we're about to get into in Luke 22 and 23. As the scene continues on, we'll continue to preach it this week. Pilate actually ruling on him that he's innocent. That's an interesting statement. We see him before Pilate, but to say he's, he's innocent, that is recorded in Luke. And then we'll see this after the resurrection, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. That is unique to Luke. It's a great passage, and we'll see that in Luke 24. Very helpful in many ways. I don't know how many weeks we'll take to deal with that, but a great story on Jesus on the road to Emmaus. That's some distinct content. Very simple outline, almost too simple to give you, but here it goes. Christ's arrival, chapter 1 through middle of chapter 4. Christ's ministry, middle of chapter 4 to chapter 9, almost to the end of chapter 9. Get some long chapters in this book. The rejection of Christ, it turns there in the middle of chapter 9, you remember, and they start to oppose him, and clearly we're on our run to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. That goes through the end of chapter 23, which we're hurrying toward in our study on the weekends. And then chapter 4, all about the resurrection of Christ. It's a great book. The Greek in it is high. It's very difficult. The Greek in Mark is more simple. It's more terse. It's, some would say, more rough. John is the easiest, be the lowest reading level. So let's talk about that. John, the fisherman. Focus. The focus is clearly stated. It's one of the great books of the Bible that tells us exactly what it's there for. We can say what Luke is doing. Luke is trying to put together an orderly account. He's doing all the research, wants to put a narrative forward. But here he says why he does it. Luke 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other things, John says, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is the whole reason I wrote the book, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the point. And as you see from the very beginning, he's making very clear Jesus is the God-man. That couldn't be clearer in this book right out of the gate. In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, Word was God. By the way, don't let the JWs tell you it's not. Go to the Christology series. I think we deal with this in Christology on Focal Point, and you can see there's seven rules of grammar, at least seven distinct situations where you do not put a, a definite article, which is the word the, before a noun. And because it's an anarthrous noun, in other words, it doesn't have an article before the word theos in that last phrase, the word was God, the JW at your door is going to tell you, and they'll bring the little Greek scholar over to tell you, well, it doesn't have, they'll even point it out maybe if they bring their little interlinear and they'll show you because their interlinear has the English underneath it that has a small g, see, because there's no definite article here. Well, that's ridiculous because you can point out several situations in the first chapter, second chapter, all have anarthrous uses of the word theos, because there's plenty of rules, at least seven, as to why you don't put a article, an article, in front of a definite noun. And in that case, it's because it's in a sentence that has the verb to be. And the verb to be, just like in English, doesn't take 
this direct object on the other side. In other words, you shouldn't pick up the phone and they say, is this Mike? You shouldn't say, this is him. You should say, this is he or I am he because the verb to be, I am, is an equal sign and you've got to have a nominative case or a subject case on both sides. The only way to tell the difference is to put in Greek is to put a definite article in front of the subject. So anyway, it's uh, obviously more complicated than that. I should leave that to the Greek scholars. But the point is, I shouldn't have started the sentence, probably is the point. But the point is, you should go to Christology or any good commentary on John, and you'll find that there's a lot of nonsense going on at the doorsteps of a lot of people trying to tell you that the beginning of the book is trying to say that Jesus is a God. Of course, that's not true. All right, that'll be one tonight. I'll lay in bed and say, I should, never should have brought that up at, at Compass Night. Not that I have any doubts about it at all, zero doubt in my mind. I once took my, I was taking Greek at the classics department at the University of Arizona. This was a non-Christian. He had no axe to grind. He wasn't evangelical. He didn't care about any of that stuff. And I brought John 1, 1 to him. And I said, tell me, some people say because it doesn't have a definite article. He was my Greek professor. You know, tell me, could this be translated? Uh, and the word was a God. And he laughed, of course. He said, no, that's impossible. It's grammatically impossible. Anyway, and he wasn't a preacher. John, no doubt about this, clear early, strong, almost unanimous opinion in the early church. Rhenius, as you see in the anti-Nicene fathers and others, many others, attributing within the first 50, 60 years of the writing of this book that John was the author. He says throughout the book that he's an eyewitness, even in the first chapter, the word became flesh, speaking of that word who was God and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We, 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 plural, first person. We've seen his glory. John 19, 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling truth that you may believe. That's the picture of him seeing Christ speared in the side and water and blood coming out of his body. He said, I, I saw it. I was there. I witnessed it. John 19. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows he is telling the truth that you may also believe. So many eyewitness descriptions here. Oh, and John twenty one twenty four. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And I don't even know if that's all of them, but I quickly got, what was that, four or five references to him making clear that he was there among them. So it couldn't be any other disciple than John the disciple, as we'll see. He calls himself throughout the book, we don't have time to make this case, but the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you just look at the context of that, you're stuck with the sense because he's leaning back on the chest of Christ and he describes him as a disciple that Jesus loved. It wasn't Peter in the context, couldn't be. Was it James? Probably not. John, it, you come to the conclusion that this was John. John was who? The son of Zebedee and Siloame. If you look carefully, he's usually just called the son of Zebedee, but his mother is also named in the book. His brother is James the apostle, not Jude, but James. You remember early on, they're called from Galilee as fishermen. So James and John, sons of Zebedee, Peter and Andrew are all working together as fishermen. He's Jewish, obviously from Israel. His name is Jewish. You can see that from reading his book, the geography, the history, the customs, everything. Talk about Samaritans. He's got a lot to say about the Samaritans and clearly shows the background. He's flabbergasted by the revolutionary way Jesus is the savior, not only to the Galileans and the Judeans, but also the Samaritans. This is the same John. John the Apostle that wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We'll look at some people that say otherwise when we get there in the book of Revelation, but that's how I'm teaching this, and I believe that. I think there's evidence that that's the case. But we'll deal with that when we get to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. Date, 
it seems as though, by the way, and I don't want to be overly presumptuous about this, but it seems that everything that John is writing assumes an understanding of the synoptics. He's not trying to connect with that book. As a matter of fact, there is so much unique material in the book, it's as though he's presenting this other gospel track, it's a long gospel track, of you need to believe in Christ, and it's a supplement, if you will, to the synoptics. Statements assuming time passage. What do you mean by that? Well, it seems like this is a long time after the original writings. And one statement that is indicative of the kind of thing I'm talking about is in John 21, 23, when he spoke about that scene, what's it to you if uh, he remains until I come back? Remember, that's what Jesus said to Peter when he restored him in John 21. And so John adds, so the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remains until I come, what's that to you? Even that, those kind of clarifications show that it seems to be that there's a, a long time passage between the writing. Not to mention the early church fathers, Arrhenius is one who speaks of him writing this from Ephesus, piecing together, for the sake of time we don't have a lot, but didn't get to Ephesus to do that resident work, if that is indeed when he actually wrote this until late in the first century. Most people give a window of about 10 years at least. It's post-fall of Jerusalem, 85 to 95. Hard to pin down. Depends on where he is, whether he's in Ephesus or on Patmos. Clearly he's on Patmos when he writes Revelation as an exile, but there's our window for what it's worth. These are some of the hardest books to nail down. We've got a couple others in the New Testament that are hard, but the Gospels are some of the hardest. Distinct content. I talk about so much unique content. 92% we said on our chart. I think we had it on the chart. Maybe we didn't have it on the chart. 92% unique material. If you want to try to summarize, we won't go through all the unique material because so much of it is unique. Just read the book and you'll find 92% of it is unique. But if you want to see the shifts kind of in a macro sense, well, he's focused much more on the Judean ministry than the other three gospels. He's the one that focused on that Judean ministry and things like referencing the Passovers when they happen. Three of them named by name. One of them he speaks of as the feast and he goes up to Jerusalem. And so we assume, as I tried to make the case two times ago, I think it was, that this is the fourth Passover. Maybe was that, Maybe that was last week. A lot more theological connections in the book. This is not just a statement about he did this, he taught that, he healed that person, then he died on the cross. There's a lot more connecting this to the theology of who Christ is, Christology, that he came from God, that he came to redeem us, that he was someone that if you trust in, your sins would be forgiven. A lot of soteriological, a lot of Christological connections. There's a lot more long discourses, particularly in the second half of the book, on Jesus preparing his disciples for ministry, which again makes a lot of sense as John is seemingly getting near the end of his life and handing this gospel off as a supplement to the other three. There's a lot more commentary in John. He's commenting on things and giving his input. Like I said, Mark may say, thus he declared all foods clean. That's a short little commentary. John's doing that in paragraphs, giving inspired commentary throughout the book. So tons and tons of distinct, distinct and unique material, but we won't go through all of that. Your harmonies of the gospel, depending on which one you get, will have a lot of that. Of course, 8% of it does overlap. Simple, simple outline. Christ is introduced in the first chapter. His ministry unfolds in the first 12 chapters. That hard turn in chapter 13, when he goes to the upper room, and it starts with that great phrase, you know, he loved his disciples to the end, right? He loved his disciples and he loved them to the fullest. There's a kind of double entendre there to the end of his life, to the end of his ministry, to the end, to the nth degree. Anyway, that starts the whole upper room discourse, the foot washing, all of that in chapter 13. Then, of course, he goes to the cross, chapters 18 through 20. The resurrection, I put that all under redemption accomplished because he dies on the cross, he suffers, and he's raised. 
And then that one dangling chapter, which clearly fits together, and John writes the conclusion at the conclusion. I mean, it all fits clearly. This is no addition, but it's as though it's an appendix to the book, the restoration of Peter at the end. And he makes that clarifying statement about some of the things that Jesus said there as he tries to bring John back into feeding my sheep, tending my lambs, feeding my, my sheep. All right, we can do this one really, really quick at the end here. The tetramorph, huh? What's that mean? You know what it means. I mean, put it together, right? Tetra, four. Morph from morphe in Greek. We use the word morph as a verb, right? Something morphed into something else. It's an image or a shape. The tetramorph, what would that mean? We're just finishing up our study of the Gospels. What are we talking about? There are four images. There are four images that represent the Gospels that represent or find their origins or their basis from the four living creatures of Ezekiel and Revelation. I only give you this because I would hate to have you go through New Testament survey, though this is really not of importance to what we would ever want to talk about you know, in our Bible studies. You're going to see this out there in the world and the icons and the paintings and things going back to the to the fifth century. We have records from the fifth century that relate to this. I thought it would be good for you to get a little tiny information on this at the end. Here's the standard assignments of taking the four living creatures that all have an image and assigning them to a gospel writer. Matthew is assigned, in most cases, this is the traditional one, and they, they mix them up depending on early writers. There is some dispute in the first few centuries. But Jerome, as again, he was very prolific, a great scholar and a translator of the Bible into Latin. He was the one, most people have followed the connection since then. But the winged man, they're all winged, but the man. If you remember, one of the living creatures had the face of a man. Then one of the living creatures had the face of a lion. That one's usually associated with Mark 90% of the time. Then there was one that had the face of an ox. That's Luke. And then one had the face of an eagle. Now, if you just know that, does it mean anything? It doesn't mean anything, okay? I'm just saying this to educate you so that outside of this room, when you see this stuff, you'll go, oh, I, I know, I learned that. Because, for instance, you'll go here. I don't think you'll go here, but who knows? You might be in Boston visiting St. John's Seminary in Boston, for instance. If you look at this, you'll go... This is supposed to be the statue of their school namesake? Yeah, it is. But look what you see down here in the corner. What is that? It's an eagle. See? And the imagery, the paintings, the symbolism of John, you just look for John. In most cases, you're going to find if there's something added to it that's an animal, you will see an, an eagle because John is associated with the eagle. Here is a picture. You don't even need, he doesn't even need a name tag here, and you can figure out who this is. Why? Because he's writing. Well, must be a writer of the New Testament. Oh, he's writing, sitting on an ox. So this must be, well, this is Luke. Here's some famous paintings from the Renaissance. I forget who this was. Somebody here kind of going over his writings just happens to be doing it with a lion. So that must be as Mark. Now, Matt, poor Matthew only has a man, but he's got wings. So that's interesting, right? So here's some icons of Matthew. You can see his winged man looking over as he's showing off his gospel. So look for this around and you'll see it. Mark up here, the lion, Matthew, the man, Luke, the ox, John, the eagle. Go to some old churches in Europe, probably some in America. I don't know where they are, but you'll see Matthew, the man, Mark, the lion, Luke, the ox, John, the eagle. If you say, why did they connect in that way? Some of the explanations are this. Matthew, I mean, there's lots of different explanations. Matthew starts with the genealogy and connects it to man. Okay, well, so did Luke. Mark is the lion. Man, what are some of the explanations of the lion? King, lion of Judah. I'm trying to think of the connections to Mark. I know Luke. Luke is the connection to the redemption of Christ being the ox, like a, like a sacrificial animal. 
there are a lot of lame, I mean, this is not Bible here, I'm teaching you now, but the eagle of, of uh, Luke, I've heard explained as the kind of connection to, to deity, right? The, he's the son of God. They, he's flying up to the heavens, whatever. Anyway, you look for it, you'll see it. It's out there all over the place. Matthew, man, Mark, lion, Luke, ox, John, eagle. They're everywhere. Sometimes you, want, you might not even make, make out the, the names, but you'll see the images. Well, here, I guess you can't see the names under those. Sometimes they're not even marked, but if you see that in a church somewhere or on the doors of something, you're going to go, I know what that represents. That represents the four gospels. I scrambled to my library just before I came out here. I wanted to at least take a picture of it and put it on here. I, I have an old Luke commentary, and of course I have my good ones on my card, and I have a lot of them electronically, but had an old Luke commentary that had a ox on the front of it. And I thought, oh yeah, I got I to gotta take a picture of that. Couldn't find it. But anyway, all right. That's just a little extra tidbit for the night. It's not biblical. It's not going to help your devotional time. All the explanations are kind of silly, but you'll leave more educated than when you came. So if you didn't know about the tetramorph, tetramorph. All right, let me pray for you. God, thanks for this crew. Thanks for us being able to talk about your word. Even the end here, we know that certainly not rooted in biblical connections. And yet there is something very strange going on in Ezekiel and Revelation 4, this four living creatures, something dramatic and crazy. And that uh, certainly gives us respect for you as we think about that heavenly scene of the four living creatures. We have a hard time even understanding what that is. But God, we appreciate the fact that there are four gospels and there are four clear inspired depictions of your son. And we'd like to become better students of those books. Sometimes I suppose it's helpful to see how other people have read them, studied them, written about them, but we want to uh, know the person that they speak of. We'd like to be more like your son in every way. We know you want to conform us to the image of your son. And even if for nothing else, we can think back to the beginning of our time together that John Mark was a guy who had stumbled badly. We preached on it this weekend and how great it was that he got up. I'm assuming he was repaired in his relationship with you a lot sooner for whatever happened there in Pamphylia than he was with the Apostle Paul, but thank you that we saw that restoration of a team there assembling back together and having confidence in someone who had stumbled in the ministry and be back to a place at the end of Paul's life where he can say, uh, this man is very useful to me in ministry. God, make us all very useful to one another, to this church, to other Christians, to our small groups, to our classes that we're involved in, to be useful for ministry in every way. And thanks for redemption. Thanks for uh, repentance. Thanks for for the kind of restoration that comes with confession and getting serious about our sin and God, the way you work so graciously in our life to get us back up and dust us off and put us right back on the track we need to be on. Thanks to one of the writers of the gospel is a, a living picture of that. Thanks too for Luke, the one Gentile among the 66 books of the Bible that reminds us of how you use people from every corner, every walk of life, every distinct background. Thanks that we can identify with him, at least just in, in the fact that we're 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 Gentiles, we're Greeks in that sense, we're, we're not Jews. And God, we thank you that you are gracious in providing a blessing through Abraham's offspring, through Christ to bless all the families of the earth. And we're so grateful to be a part of that. So dismiss us now, God, with a sense of your favor upon us. Do good things through Compass 2020 and the exciting things that we're trying to endeavor to do here. And I pray that you provide in every way. We pray for the closing on that building across the street. We pray for the kind of preparing for ministry that's going to go, go on over there. And we pray that even this on Compass Nights will be just a bit of a taste of the excitement of what it'll be to move this to the next level in classroom settings with papers and books and assignments and ministry opportunities and posts to fill. And got to just look forward to those days. Thanks for your goodness to us, just getting us through our day. And I pray that we move into the weekend with an excitement to 
open your word together as a church. We love our church. We love these people. We love your word. Thanks for getting us together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.